This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, who are we speaking with this evening? Sarge, this evening we are diving into the wide world of space with Alan Duffy, who is a professional astronomer and science communicator currently heading up Swinburne University's Space Technology and Industry Institute in Melbourne. Alan is also the lead scientist at the Royal Institution of Australia, which is an independent charity dedicated to connecting people with the world of science. Also a research fellow and associate professor at Swinburne Centre for Astrophysics and Supercomputing. Alan has a wealth of experience and knowledge in the industry, which we are really keen to dive into. So Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Mate, there's, uh, as I said, heaps that we want to dive into um, today with you. And it's a bit of a different one. We normally get, you know, the younger professionals, but we're happy to extend that kind of definition to you today. Um, but we want to kind of understand what the space industry is and the opportunities that are available to students coming through now. So why don't you walk us through kind of what your role is at Swinburne and what they're doing in the space recently? Okay. So the, the Institute of Swinburne is, uh, it's an outward facing organization. It's, it's intended to give companies and communities who have issues down here on earth, problems they need to solve, um, access to the expertise internal to Swinburne that can solve those problems through space. Now, uh, that can be everything from uh, new kinds of manufacturing, material sciences. Uh, it can be uh, remote sensing. So using the satellites in orbit, the, the pictures we get, or the, the uh, indeed the satellites as, as relays of remote sensors distributed all across Australia. There are many different ways that space is used in our everyday lives. I think that perhaps most of us may not be even that, that aware of, and perhaps we'll get to that um, when we, we talk a little bit more about careers in space. And I think that's, that's important, the understanding that um, space is not that far away and, in fact, is a very integral part of our lives. The idea of, of uh, what the space industry is, it's maybe easier to say what it's not. It's not astronauts, right? It is not about sending people up there there's absolutely a crude presence in, in NASA and, and um, the European Space Agency, for example. That's not a part of the Australian Space Agency's goals, mandate. Um, no one in Australia is doing that. What we do instead is try to use our um, uh, uh, access to space and the satellites up there and the techniques we develop for the benefit of Earth, for creating jobs down here and better services and products. On that, Alan, where do we draw the delineation between space and, and non-space from an atmosphere perspective? Is there a certain point that we, we go, okay, well, now I'm in space versus now I'm still in Earth? Yeah, yeah. So so technically, you get your flight wings or you get your little astronaut symbol. Um, I think if you're NASA, gosh, I should have checked. Uh, this is testing my knowledge. I think it's the – so you've got the Kármán line. It's about um, 70 – kilometers above the surface uh technically if you hit that then you're an astronaut i think other countries set the bar a little higher i think it's closer to 100k if you're if you're for example from russia so um <laughs> you know the americans just made it a little easier for themselves but maybe look, they got I, their k's and miles mixed up 
Yeah, yeah. So it's that happened once, and that's how they lost a probe to Mars. They literally <laughs> messed up kilometers and miles. It's a real <laughs> tragedy. But the intention, at least, was if you can get to a couple of hundred uh, uh, kilometers above the surface, then the atmosphere is so thin that you're to all intents and purposes able to just keep going around the earth without having to constantly fire your rockets to keep your speed up. And, uh, the faster, well, essentially you need to go to a certain speed just so that as you fall and every object in space is falling constantly, you're falling, but you're falling. And as you move sideways, you go over the horizon as it were, and the earth falls away below you, but you're basically constantly falling. You're just going fast enough that you're able to keep skipping over the horizon and never hit the ground. That's li like literally what orbit is. So um, it doesn't, it's not about, um, yeah, going too much further, at least from most uses of space. There's a sweet spot a little further, out, quite a lot further out called geostationary. And that's where you orbit in um, together with the motion of the earth and rotation of the earth. And that's where you have satellites that keep a complete constant look on the earth or for example your foxtail dish it's going to ping off comms um uh, uh satellites that are sitting at geostationary all intents and purposes everything else sits just about a couple of hundred k's above your head if you were at highway speeds it's barely an hour space is barely an hour journey direct up from where you sit okay well, hopefully one close. day we'll be able to uh, see it for ourselves but by the sounds of it that day is getting closer and closer um, Alan, I want to get into with uh, with you your understanding of kind of what um, I guess the educational space looks like for students that are interested in this stuff. But I think to paint a, a bit more of a broader picture, do we want, let's talk about what the commercial environment looks like. Mm. And when you're talking about you know space is kind of going to be touching most in the industries in the near future. Um, do you want to kind of talk about that? And I think that's got a bit to do with satellites and how yeah. what their impact is going to have on our lives. Do you want to talk about the kind of commercial um, opportunities that are available now and why that is going to be driving jobs um, in the really near future? Yeah, absolutely. Look, this is this is part of the Australian Space Agency mandate, treble the value of the sector to the economy by the end of the decade and, and to $12 billion and have an extra 20,000 jobs be created. What that looks like in practice, what those jobs are, there are rocket manufacturers, right? There are literal rocket scientists sitting up at Gilmore Space Technologies um, out on the, the um, near the Gold Coast. We have um, satellite makers, uh, uh, for example, Fleet down in, in Adelaide. Um, what they're doing is they're relaying signals from sensors on farms that have uh, monitoring, for example, the water tank levels um, across these, these vast areas. And they're pinging back that signal via satellite. Um, Miriota is another example of a company that's doing that kind of remote sensor uh, monitoring. And so space is just being used. It's just a very convenient way to transmit data. Uh, it's, it sounds a little kind of boring when you put it that way, but it's, it's bouncing off satellites, right? I mean, it's pretty cool stuff. Um, Could you liken that to throwing a helicopter in the air, but instead of the helicopter being like a 500 meters above our head, it's like you said, an hour's drive if you're doing highway speeds? Yeah, look, there, I think there's actually a lot of overlap, perhaps uh, not, not so much with, with helicopters, with, with drones. The way we use drone technology, right, and you get a close-up view um, uh, and, and it's remotely operated, you've got various sensors on board, you've got, um, you know, a lot of 
a lot of the way we use drones and think about drones is very similar to, to the new era of these small satellites, these, these nanosats or cubesats. Um, so yeah, some of them have cameras, some of them have various sensors or just relaying those signals. Um, so that's the kind of growth area we're going to see. It's about using the information from space in sectors like ag mining, for example, uses satellites to an extraordinary degree. Um, so all of those are the big growth areas in, in the space sector. Um, sad to say building rockets, building the ginormous, you know, satellite dishes to receive signals and to communicate. Uh, that's actually a relatively limited number of jobs. I'm, I'm afraid to say it's, it's mostly data science It's mostly using the information from space here on earth. That's pretty crazy to hear and to think about what, um, what are the key sorts of, uh, like techniques from a skills perspective? What are we, what are we talking in terms of both technical and non-technical skills for, for these new space age workers that we're going to mm. see coming through in the next five to 10 years? So a lot of it will be the core competencies and skills of, of, of any other disciplinary. In other words, it's just, it's just another domain, right? If you're, um, an engineer, mechanical, uh, for example, you'll have a slight tweak when you need to know the space aspects of that. But for most of your degree, you're still going to be learning the same kind of stuff or electrical engineering, for example. Um, I think the data science case is very similar. It's very similar to, um, yeah, to, to analyze the, the satellite imagery. If you've done a computer vision degree, you're basically super employable for space, right? It's, it's an image from space is just a little more awe-inspiring than an image from a CCTV camera of, on Earth, but the analysis you do is pretty similar. So those are the kinds of ways. So in other words, you're doing the core skills of like similar to any other domain, but with a space flavor. At least that's the intention of a lot of the universities where we're trying to offer similar uh, uh, courses, but then with the translation of those skills into a space domain. And that's partly because we want to ensure that students are actually capable of getting that they're not so specialized in space that they wouldn't be eligible for roles here on earth. Right. Of course, noting you're not actually commuting to orbit, but I think the key is unless you're highly specialized. And I mean that for, you know, if you're literally building the rockets, okay, then you're doing aerospace engineering. You're clearly a rocket engineer. But for almost all the other activities, um, your background is is very similar to a mechanical or civil engineer. And as I say, there are other roles within the space domain. There are space lawyers. There is a focus, a growing focus now on space medicines. So all of these things, guess what? You still do a law degree. You still um, uh, research uh, some aspect of medical science. But then at usually towards the end of your degree, you're doing that that year of the translation of that expertise into the space domain, learning about the constraints of space in the case of law, um, the international treaties and the like, but you're also then looking for those work experience opportunities because that's perhaps the most challenging aspect of the space domain. We are a relatively small uh, um, sector at still at this point uh, in a highly competitive global industry. We really, our best and brightest essentially are leaving Australia going to work over in the States or in the European uh, nations on their very much more established space agencies and, and uh, industries. Um, thankfully, they then come back and take those skills. That's We want to keep that going. We want them to go, our best and brightest to go abroad and then come back and bring the best practice to Australia. Um, at a certain point, though, it's going to be 
we'll grow our industry sufficiently large that we're going to see other people coming to Australia as their first choice uh, early in their career. And that will be an exciting moment. That's when we'll know we've actually made it as a, as a spacefaring nation. What, what do you think will drive that tipping point of um, people actually staying put in Australia and, and or coming back to Australia and really driving the space industry here? I think it's one of scale. Um, we have pockets of, of incredible excellence. So uh, Australia, it's, well, okay, so formerly the Australian Space Agency released the civil space um, uh, priority areas, and there were seven areas they felt that we were just able to have competitive advantage. I think classic cases of this are in communications where almost all major spacefaring uh, nations or entities have communications facilities in Australia or leverage our capabilities for that, for communicating to their satellites. And, um, and you know, that's an area where we get significant um, growth in our, in our personnel. And, and I think it is a world leading capability. Um, a lot of the other ones are nascent, they're growing. I think the difference, you know, the tipping point is, is happening right now where we're seeing, um, in particular in Adelaide, just this extraordinary concentration of, of um, small, medium enterprise, so the SMEs, um, along with, you know, dozens, eight, you know, maybe even now we're probably getting to hundreds nationally, but at least the major concentration of those would be sitting now in Adelaide. So that government support has really driven a huge ecosystem and that's where we're getting the tipping point where the opportunities are, uh, are so compelling, so good that there's the future growth is so, um, uh, tangible that we're seeing people want to stay, to hang around a startup, to work here in lieu of going abroad for that, that first couple of years. And, and that's exciting. I mean, that's, that's a really good positive sign. I think we just need to see that ex that experience in Adelaide demonstrated nationally. Um, Melbourne, we've got lots of great companies doing great work, um, but but until we have our own Australian companies being the primes in major efforts, so that's where you get a, a government contract to build a satellite, launch a system, et cetera, et cetera. That goes to major groups like the US, you know, Lockheed Martin or Lidos or any of these other so-called prime contractors who then, you know deliver that, but individual little bits of it go to others, other groups. When we have an Australian company as the prime, then I think we'll know we've made it. Then we will have had success. When we're giving out contracts, little tiny pieces of those contracts to other groups like Americans, then we know we've made it. Alan, it, it seems like particularly in Australia and I'm doing a bit of reading before, I didn't realize how kind of important Australia was to the, um, you know, the global, um, reach to space like i read that we were um the only place that nasa can communicate with space for some to some extent and that yeah, we for were the voyager spacecraft yeah it's yeah, right. still the only one yeah okay well and like i think there's a lot of those bits and pieces that people don't really kind of appreciate um it, it would seem like it's this is the start of an opportunity to you know, almost expand the human race's knowledge into this area and it feels like what you know when you're at school you read about how we expanded into antarctica right? Mm. And how we're going to make those first claims there. Is this a kind of an opportunity for people in Australia to be involved in something completely novel? I think it is, but I think we've also got an interesting opportunity and you, you raised that example of Antarctica. Australia's legacy in Antarctica was to uh, push for the international treaty, right? That made it, uh, uh, prevented indeed the 
the nations of the world claim staking. And we have an opportunity to do something similar in space. We're, we've signed up to the moon treaty, but we're also signatories to NASA's return to the moon, the Artemis Accords. We're the only nation on earth to have both, um, uh, to have been involved in both of these, these major pieces of international legislation. So we can actually inform the world on what best practice looks like, just as we did with Antarctica, um, about how we should explore space and exploit the resources of space and space uh, uh, mining, mining the moon. Uh, this, you know, uh, what is it? We have now five PhDs in, in my institute alone and uh, work being led by uh, Jeff Brooks and Akbar Ramdani. Um, in collaboration with the CSRO that are actually exploring how to mine the moon. Right. So this stuff is happening. Uh, we, and it's something that Australia can truly claim to be a world leader at in, in the mining sector. And we hope to do so in a responsible, sustainable manner. Uh, and I think, I hope certainly for some students that the idea of being involved in using the resources of space. Uh, so, so the water on the moon to resupply astronauts, uh, to grow crops, to, to be split into hydrogen oxygen as literal rocket fuel to further refuel for exploration into Mars, for example, as part of the Artemis uh, mission, that these are, these are exciting challenges. And this is something that we've really can deliver on. So I, I hope that's inspiring. I, I certainly hope it encourages people to think also about the broader societal aspects, the, the responsibility that we have. And as a result, get students interested. Perhaps they were going to head down the social science route to keep in mind that space is not some, some engineering wonky kind of thing, right? Like you actually can. It's real. Yeah. You, we, we need you. We need the lawyers. We need the social scientists. We need all of these groups who traditionally would be seen in, in you know, the arts faculties or whatever of, of a uni. They have a role and indeed a duty to be at this discussion, at this critical moment in time and space where we, we explore and exploit it in a sustainable, manageable way and perhaps don't repeat the failures of the past. Alan, moving back to the, the engineering faculty of the universities, you mentioned mm. mining on the moon. Like, what does that look like? Is like, what sort of resources are there and how far progressed is the thinking on that? So we have, um, so the main aspect, or at least the first uh, uh, quantity of interest up there is, is water. So the moon is incredibly dry, but recent discoveries have shown that there's actually potentially even ice reserves underneath the dust. Um, that water is critical because what, by the time you take a bottle of water, a liter bottle of water up to the moon that has cost you because of the rocket fuel you've had to expend fighting the earth's gravity to get it all the way there um is is uh basically more than if that bottle of water was just pure gold right so here on earth it is really expensive to ship stuff up to space so if we can use the resources there we will save an absolute fortune from that perspective and make possible the exploration to to mars as, as part of nasa's artemis um, other resources include um, the metals that make up the moon. There's there's lots of iron. There's, there's also silicates. There's other good stuff up there. So what does mining the moon look like? What are those kinds of aspects? Um, it looks like building some very clever hardware that can withstand the conditions. It's, space is not great um, from that perspective. 
It's about remote operations. So we're very rightly proud in Australia that we have these mines that have um, trucks controlled from from Perth, right? And an air nice air conditioning office in Perth. Um, that there are trains, or the entire system of loading is entirely automated for you know improved efficiency and safety. So that's what we need to do, just to an even more extraordinary degree, world leading capability um, on the moon. So that's kind of what. Mining the moon looks to all intents and purposes is something very similar to what we do in WA, just just a little harder. And that's, of course, the excitement. Sounds extremely sustainable too, in that we're, we're doing it to, to better or in, improve our ex- exploration of space as opposed to um, trying to bring it back to Earth. Because when you first mentioned mining, I was thinking, oh, okay, well, if we mine stuff, how are we going to get it back to back to Australia, back to Earth? But clearly that's not, that's not what's going on. Yeah, all the value is in using it up there. And I think, you know, are we going to do that in a sustainable way? Are we going to do that in a responsible way? That's for us to decide right now. And I think the challenge is that you've got all these companies that are really progressed. There's actually, um, there's startups who, an Israeli startup who managed to reach the moon. Now they just at the last second, the, the rocket didn't quite, um, fire well enough for them to safely land. That was a mapping exercise. They were literally going up there to try to figure out mining. So while we've got a startup doing that, and SpaceX already has the capabilities to land, Jeff Bezos of Amazon already has the lander that that NASA will have, will probably end up purchasing um, rather than building its own to return to the moon. You know, you have these people who are literally doing this stuff right now, and yet if you bring this up to politicians, right. To your local member, they'll just look at you like you're crazy. Like, what are you talking about worrying about the moon? And that's the problem because it seems so fantastical. It will happen before we, we grapple with it as a society. And I think that's part of the, the importance of a space sector and, and, and being um, educated in, in the space domain is that you realize just how close this stuff is. You realize how extraordinary the fact that, uh, we, in one rocket launch by SpaceX, for example, they launched more satellites into orbit in one go than, a, than the first 30 years of all of humanity's efforts in, in space since Sputnik. You know, these, th- this kind of stuff, we are seeing thousands of objects being launched every year. So this is an extraordinary time where we are truly redefining well, we've, we've already industrialized low Earth orbit and we'll, we'll go on and do the same perhaps in the next couple of decades in the moon and beyond. We have an opportunity right now to do that in a way that's inclusive, that's, that's sustainable, but only if we get involved. And I think that that's, that's what I would hope anyone listening just thinks, yeah, you know what? I want to be an engineer. I want to be a social scientist. I want to do policy work. I want to be a lawyer but I really want to make sure that these activities in space are done for the right reasons in the right way. And I have a role to play in that. It sounds like an absolute, um, you know, amazing opportunity and and a big one over the next few years, just bringing, so to speak, bringing things back to earth a little mm-hmm. bit and on our way to talk about um, kind of the different courses that someone might be keen to get involved with. You mentioned the CSIRO. CSIRO. I know they've got a pretty cool program. I think it's called pastures, from space or, or something oh, along yeah, those lines. Yeah. Can you just maybe use that as an example to illustrate to people the kinds of things that are currently happening on earth to do, to, to make things more efficient on earth that are using things like satellites that are in space? 
Yeah, absolutely. So th- this is a great example. So we have in agriculture, you, you might not imagine, you know, the farm being the absolute epicenter of space related activities, but it really is, especially Australian farms. We have these huge areas. They're absolutely ripe for, um, uh, for, for, for the translation of these latest technologies into. So some of the CSR efforts we've got, um, uh, I liken it. There's a little, uh, uh, essentially little GPS tag that, that you, um, a little ring that you put on a, on a cow's ear. And this is essentially a Fitbit for, for cows. We've got, so we're able to monitor their movement. You can literally see on their, on the, essentially a Google map esque interface, you're able to see their, their track. Uh, you can profile how quickly they're walking, their average footsteps. You can begin to get indication of if they're uh, injured, if they're, if there's something unusual about their behavior. So that's, that's monitoring. Now we also have the opportunity for active control. So in this instance, there's a small um, uh, electric uh, shock within the, the uh, device, or at least that's, that's kind of the intention. Um, the, it doesn't hurt them, but essentially you can, you can do this little buzz um, and they'll respond to that. You can delineate on that little Google Earth interface a boundary, right? a virtual fence. And there's literally nothing on the ground. You've just, you, the farmer, have just drawn this, this outline of a space. And if they stray too close to that, it's like an electric fence. They'll get a little, little shock, but they're getting it from this fit that there's nothing on the ground. It's the same response. They don't care. They're going to start to walk away. And then, so that's extraordinary. Now you have, you've removed the need for one of the most costly aspects of, of, um, of, of farming where we have to fence, at least for this reason, for, for cattle control. And now you can become very nuanced, very smart about it. So now instead of um, having to, to rustle those uh, cattle and, and, you know, very costly and dangerous exercise, instead you just move the boundary and indeed have the boundary move automatically and you herd them and you herd them to new pastures from space. You can see the kinds of, grass levels, the, the, um, amount of feed. So when one area is exhausted or getting close to from space, you can automatically see that that is happening. And now there's another piece. So the, the, you change the boundary and it automatically herds the cattle into the new grass. If you're seeing they're not walking enough, right. Maybe, maybe they get a little encouragement to continue walking. They get their exercise, they get their, their 10,000 steps or whatever the cattle equivalent is. It gets even more nuanced because now you can do it on an individual animal basis and you know when a cow is ready to be milked and you can herd that cow to the milking station and it just milks itself and then off it goes in an automated process. And all of this is being done in a fusion of satellite imagery, the relaying of signals from space, the very latest in artificial intelligence and human machine interface with the, the virtual fencing all of these activities and it's happening on a farm right here in Australia. This is the future. It's where you bring together all of those extraordinary skills and knowledge underpinned by the ability to, to transmit this data, to, to get the information from space. Um, but closely working with end users, working with the farmers to design, to inform that process. So you have at the end of the day, not just something that's technologically incredible and, and unites all of these skills and areas, but also delivers 
for the farmer. So they have a more productive, more profitable business. And I think that's where the kind of breakdown um, of or this huge thing called space becomes a reality for say a data scientist or someone at uni studying data science who, you know, thinks, oh, I can crunch data that has in, the, uh, is is in you know thousands of images, and I can I can do that. I can think about doing that, and all of a sudden they might be working in you know quote unquote the space industry. So mm-hmm. I think that's a really good illustration of how broad this can be for students moving forward. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think it's also being aware of just how easy it is to translate across. So you're being hired to do a role. You know, let's let's say it's the image analysis case. Um, the experience you have, both as a student, but also you know maybe you're a few years out and you're looking to to move careers in computer vision or other other um, similar image analysis domains. There's so many tools out there that standardize that interaction with space. We call it the Open Data Cube. There's Digital Earth Australia. There's even the Easy platform from the CSRO, which which puts it all in the cloud, so it's really easy to use. Um, you know, a lot of these there's Python interfaces, you know, that are literally free with instructions on how to do this stuff, like G, called GeoPandas and other things. There's no the the limitations of your involvement in the space sector. There are no insurmountable barriers at this point. I mean, if you're good at your, at your role, at your work, um, your domain of expertise, but you want to see if that can be moved into the space domain, there's any number of free resources out there to help you with that. There's also any number of growing courses, offerings from universities. We, we talk about co-majors in the case of Swinburne, we have a, uh, um, a space co-major where you do your core expertise, but now you also do a few extra units that, that bring that into a space context. There are micro credentials that are for people already in the workforce to, to reskill and many other universities are offering something similar. Those are the kinds of things that will help us at this early stage in our development as, as a sector. I hope of course, that we continue to grow and then you could just do space image analysis as a degree from the start, because there's now so many roles out there that you don't even have to uh, uh, worry about that level of competition, right? You can go a hundred percent focused at the start. I just think at this stage for at least the next five to 10 years, we probably want to ensure all of our students and people who are thinking about moving into the space sector understand it's, you know, it is still a growing industry. Um, that if you're good, you you will find a role, um, but that you know it may be a bit of a struggle. It may be a lot of you know interning and other aspects to to for these these companies essentially to this, a lot of them being startups to be familiar with your work and, and be able to trust that you'll do that good job. But I think you know this is a a growing sector, and the people I saw when I came into it, and just as a bit of background, I've always been in astro- uh, I've always wanted to do astronomy. Um, and was doing astronomy research quite happily. And then I started to get more involved in hands-on engineering through dark matter experimentation. And then the image analysis I did for astronomy and these simulated universes as my background, I started to become very much more focused on, on the potential for satellite imagery. And then over these last couple of years, it's really just gone, gone ridiculous with all the various space activities I'm doing, but they're all the skills that I had from other domains that now have found a home in space. And all of the colleagues that I've seen over these last few years are the same. They've, they've very few people have a 
space only degree or if if even that were a thing you know they've all come from other domains and they've seen the potential for space to do something cool to do something different um but always with that end goal in mind of an end user need here on earth very very few of the things we ever do are really truly designed only for space and i think you know crude flight it would be would be one of those instances and sadly we don't have aussie knots yet but i but i hope one day um we, we might but uh, i think certainly right now the agency has its hands full trying to grow the sector out to the end of the decade on that alan where would you point students to um as a as a good first point of call to maybe learn a bit more about the space industry or to yeah just get an understanding of uh like what's actually out there yeah so i think in terms of of resources um, head to the Royal Institution of Australia. We have a, a space um, focus there, and in particular uh, with with careers uh, in mind. I would also say if you really are serious about the space, um, understanding the space sector, there is the um, International Space University. It's hosted by Adelaide uh, every year. There you will meet all of the various individuals who will stick with you for, for the next few decades in the space sector. It's, it's a global, um, sadly online at this point, but hopefully returns to that, that kind of global perspective. And I think that's a really exciting place to make that final transition into the space industry with your existing core capability as an engineer lawyer, whatever else it may be. Um, but yeah, also perhaps just go to this Australian space agency and, you know what? Also just ping anyone you see doing anything in space. And I think you'll be surprised. They'll, they'll respond that they will be super thrilled to um, give you some guidance and look, if they don't, I will just space institute at swin.edu.au. I'll try my best to give some advice as well. Famous last words. Um, <laughs> yeah. Alan, uh, on that point, um, say someone goes, yep, I'm, I'm very keen. What does the, I guess, uh, choice of, degrees look like now? Do you enroll in a bachelor of space um, or is it more of a, I'll enroll in a more generalist degree and try and get my hands on some space related subjects. Um, and then do you want to just quickly, I know we're getting to the end, but walk us through kind of, is it important to do a master's degree? Do you have to have a PhD um, mm. to get into this field? Uh, what, what does that kind of area look like? Yeah. Okay. So there's very few uh, space bachelors, um, I think it's fair to say, and it's something the, the university sector is very aware of, and we are working closely with the, the burgeoning space industry to understand what such an offering would actually entail. Um, at this point, most universities will offer units within their courses, uh, that, that are space related. And as I say, a few of us like, um, uh, Swinburne and also the ANU and, and a few others in particular, uh, UniSA are offering, that kind of co-major idea where you're doing your core focus area, but now with the addition of um, units that help put that in the space context. In other words, you do what you want to do in terms of engineering, law, medicine, whatever else it may be, but then you'll have an opportunity to, to have something of a space focus. Now that should be clearly articulated, by the way, that you shouldn't have to be too Sherlock about this to investigate, do they have space units? They should be telling you that when you go looking on the website. Oh, you, you'd be surprised how, uh, how good those university websites are. <laughs> yeah. Look, as I said, I mean, you know, I, I like our swim run word for this. We have a big banner for space, but you know, and, and, um, but yeah, some, some of the, um, 
maybe they're not great. But look, as I said, you're you're trying to be um, a little discerning when you do the search. It's there is very few, if any, actual Bachelor of Space Black. Now, I would also at this point have you really consider work experience. Like the fundamental point of difference between you and any other bright young person interested in the space sector will be that you got work experience as part of your degree. You were able to be placed in a company, an area relevant for space. That distinguishes, in fact, that's probably going to be a person who grabs you after your degree because now they've trialed you, as it were, um, at a low risk to themselves. And if you were good, you will almost certainly end up with that role that, that happens so, so um, frequently, it's unreal. Now, do you need to go on beyond the bachelor's to master's? Probably you need to do master's, I would say. That's certainly not going to hurt. Do you need to do PhD? And that's really difficult because I loved my PhD in, in astrophysics. I, I had uh, just under four years to focus, to think about the most extraordinary concepts and develop the most incredible depth of, of expertise in, in computer simulations, various programming efforts. You'll get the same kind of level of training. You'll get exposure. There's many more opportunities for work experience at the Institute. We've placed, in fact, one of our PhD students from computer vision, a fantastic student called Jack White did a project with planet labs, right? They're the biggest satellite operator, uh, biggest uh, earth observing satellite operator in history. Are they spin um, out of Google. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the guys who did spun out of Google. They're the ones who deliver the Google earth imagery and other things. Right. So, um, uh, good place to be as a, as a new freshly minted person coming into the industry. Yeah. That was, a, that was a pretty cool contact to make, I think. Um, so, and a really nice paper, actually, that's not out on archive if you want to Google it. But, um, the idea was, uh, as a PhD student, you, you do have a bit more time to develop your skills. However, at this stage, I think it is mixed whether if you can step right in post masters to a space related company, I probably would do that. And the reason I say that is not to say you don't ever go to do the PhD, but you can always come back for the PhD. And if you come back with a couple of years of work experience, you're going to be in a much better um, place in terms of your exposure to industry, industry standards. Two of our PhD students doing the uh, lunar mining projects have come from industry. They're both called Matt. Um, and their, their background means that they approach this in such a more um, capable and experienced manner than if they'd gone straight into it. Uh, and that's simply because they've had many years of, of industry experience and that really does count for a lot. So yeah, if you get that opportunity, go for it, delay your intake, perhaps for the PhD. If you don't have an opportunity, do the PhD, but do it at a, at a university that has strong ties to space. Of course, Swinburne, there's UNSW, there's the ANU, there's UniSA, um, you know, the QUT, these are, are, are groups, oh, of course, shout out to Curtin, Phil Bland runs an amazing institute up there, um, and, and UWA with, with uh, Daniela Breschkow. So these are, these are areas, universities that have a stated and funded group working in space activities. They're all different flavors. Some focus on the mining, some on, on earth observation, some on, on literal rockets. So find the one that aligns with you best and try to do your PhD in that area. And, and again, you want to go somewhere where you actually can do the work. You don't want to study it. You, you, you learn by exposure to real challenges 
an industry almost invariably has the biggest challenges out there. And I think that that's, that's where you want to try and get in that experience if you can. Awesome. I think that's awesome advice, Alan, and a, a fantastic place for us to leave it tonight. So we'd like to thank you a lot for your time because it's been super to hear about the space industry and, and how that is going to, or how it is impacting our lives and is going to continue to impact our lives moving forward. So thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.